Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Each week we'll be looking at topics and questions coming from the Sunday morning sermon passage that didn't make it into the sermon or were worth looking at further. In other words, what was left on the cutting floor. Happy Thanksgiving! I'm Emily and with me is Pastor Zach. This week your sermon covered Genesis 5 verse 1 through 6 verse 8. What is significant about the 10-member genealogy from Adam to Noah in Genesis 5? I think one of the interesting things about the structure of this first genealogy is it sets a, a pattern of these significant genealogies that we'll see throughout the rest of the Old Testament that are also 10-member genealogies. So there's three of these that are important. The first is here in Genesis chapter 5. It takes us from Adam down to Noah. And then we'll see in Genesis chapter 11, there's going to be another 10-member genealogy. This is going to take us from Noah's son Shem all the way down to Abraham. And then in the book of Ruth chapter 4, there's going to be a third 10-member genealogy. And this is going to take us from Perez all the way down uh, to David. And a couple of things I think are fascinating about this. Number one, each of these 10-member genealogies, they take us not only over a large period of time, but they bring us to a really important person in biblical history, to Noah, to Abraham, to David. And then, and more than that, as you really think about who those men are, each of these 10-member genealogies, they conclude at a covenant head. We have the Noahic covenant. We have the Abrahamic covenant. We have the Davidic covenant. So in terms of the major Old Testament covenants that are moving the redemptive story of God's plan for the world forward, we find that these genealogies are effectively giving us a reading guide for the Bible and saying, look, pay attention to what's happening here. And the man who comes at the end of these genealogies is a covenant head. And uh, so I think that's a, that helps set the tone for us as we read through our Old Testament Bibles. When we come to these 10-member genealogies, they're cueing us in to a really important person in the biblical story. Why did people live so long prior to the flood? I think the most straightforward explanation that we have is that the effects of the curse are slow working in the in the early days uh, post-fall. And then you have these men that are living for hundreds and hundreds of years, close to a thousand years down to the time of the fall. And then after the flood, there's almost this reset that happens in creation as a result of the pervasive evil in the world. God judges the world cataclysmically uh, through the flood. And then post-flood, you see these ages of, of men's lives is drastically reduced increasingly toward um, the ages that are, are more commensurate with the life expectancies that we have today. So I think that that communicates to us that there is a, a slower outworking of the curse in the days immediately following the fall. And then after God judges the world in the flood and essentially restores and resets creation, uh, there is a dramatic change in which the effects of the fall are very rapidly evident even in our physical bodies. In your sermon, you said that the sons of God who marry the daughters of men in Genesis 6 refer to angels, but in Matthew 22, verse 30, Jesus says that angels do not marry. So how could Genesis 6 be referring to angels? Well, I think that's a really good question, but we need to remember that Jesus says in that text, and he's responding to this, um, this question about what happens you know, in the afterlife to come, who are we married to? And he responds by saying that we're going to be like the angels in that the angels are not given in marriage. 
which is true, of course, because Jesus says it, number one, but that doesn't mean that angels are incapable either of marrying or entering into uh, sexual relations. It just means that they are not given in marriage. In Jude 6, we read this statement, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now that phrase, um, the chains of gloomy darkness, is almost an identical phrase to the one that second uh, that Peter uses in Second Peter chapter two that we looked at last week of the connection of Noah and these angels who sinned that God kept in gloomy darkness. So, what is the connection between? Noah and these angels, we mentioned in the sermon that that connection is found in Genesis chapter 6, that these sons of God refer to these angels who are entering into relations with human women. But Jude goes on to say here, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. So his, he's saying here, Sodom and Gomorrah are judged because they also engaged in sexual immorality. But for that relationship to hold true, he's also saying that these angels who are judged indulged in sexual immorality. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. So I think what's happening here, the angels who are not given by God in marriage, these fallen angels transgressed God's authority by seeking to grab for themselves what God had not given them, which was relations with human women. In the same way that Eve reaches to take the forbidden fruit that God had said was not for her good, these angels do the same thing. They are then cast uh, into this place where they are now bound by these chains and I think that helps us understand, again, from another text in the New Testament, what is really happening in, in Genesis chapter 6. So while Jesus does say angels are not given in marriage, these angels took what God had not given. If these fallen angels had relations with human women once, how do we know that it won't be done again or that they aren't doing it now? Yeah, I think that's a relevant question for us uh, to ask. And I think that the biblical, the biblical evidence gives us an assurance that this was a unique event that took place in the pre-flood world, but that God decisively acted to prevent this from happening again and to judge those angels who partook in this sin. So, so my view from putting all the biblical evidence together is that this activity that we see from some of these fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6 is not true of all the demonic angels that fell with Satan. I don't think that all of the fallen angels uh, partook in these human relations because in Second Peter chapter 2 that we looked at this week and then in this text in, in Jude uh, verse 6, we read that God placed them, these angels who fell, under in these chains of gloomy darkness. And uh, in hell is what it says in Second Peter, that he placed them in hell. I think what this is indicating is, one, that these angels are now bound. They're no longer free to enter or interact with humankind in the world the way that other demonic angels clearly are. We then have this encounter that Jesus has with a demoniac, a man possessed by demons. And when Jesus is casting the demons out of the demoniac, the demons say to Jesus, please do not cast us into the pits. And the question is, what are these pits that the angels are referring to, that the demons are referring to? And I think that they are referring back, based on the text here in Jude and in Second Peter, to these other angels, these other fallen angels who were already judged by how they interacted with humankind and have now been placed 
under these eternal gloomy chains of darkness. They're bound and they're bound in hell. And so they are already receiving what will be their eternal judgment. The, the demons that are possessing the demoniac, they're saying, okay, we've interacted with man. We know that we're being judged, but don't throw us into the pit like those other angels have already been thrown into. So God judged those angels. He's prevented them from interacting with, with man again. God then judges the world in the flood, wipes out the children uh, that the daughters of men had with these sons of God, these angels, and so effectively eliminates from human history uh, the effects of, of, the, of that perverted relationship. How did the Nephilim show up again after the flood? Weren't they wiped out with the flood? You know, I've heard all kinds of bizarre interpretations about how the Nephilim show up in the text later. And we need to hold a couple of things in tension. Number one, Moses says in Genesis 6, the Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also afterward. And the thing that comes between the in those days and the afterward is the flood of Noah. So a couple of people have, have postulated um, that, you know, perhaps um, these Nephilim, if particularly if they were spiritual beings and these demon spawn, uh, maybe they somehow supernaturally were able to survive the earth being overwhelmed with water in the way that real humans could not. But like I said in the sermon, these Nephilim, uh, I don't think are actually the children of the angels and the human women, the fallen angels and the human women. Moses says they were in the earth in those days. So he's saying these Nephilim are not those children. They were already around when the angels started marrying human women. Others have suggested that perhaps this is an indication that Noah's flood was not a global event. And so that there were parts of the world where people were able to seek refuge and escape. And this localized flood w- wiped out a lot of people, but not the Nephilim. Uh, I think clearly as we look at and we'll see coming up in, in the future weeks that Noah's flood is a global event and the New Testament authors also treat it that way. So I think what there's two good options for how the Nephilim are there before the flood and they're there after the flood. The first option is that the Nephilim are just a way of referring to really big violent men. It's just kind of a colloquialism or a term that is used and applied. So in the same way that people might refer to uh, Chicago gangsters as wise guys, even though they're not wise uh, in any sense of the word, it's just a way that we refer to these kind of corrupt criminals. That might be a term, the Nephilim might just be a known term for people who are really large and really violent. And that was a term that was in common use before the flood and the Israelites In the book of Numbers, when they see these giant people and violent people in the land of Canaan, they use that same term again and said, hey, these are like the Nephilim. That's what we're going to call them. That's one option. If it's not actually a genetic group, it's just a a description. The other option would be if this is an actual genetic family of individuals, a a gene pool of, of, of people from a particular family line, that one of the sons of Noah, their wives, was from this family that was connected in some way to the Nephilim. And if that's the case, my assumption would be that it would be Ham's wife, because Ham is the one who we'll see is cursed. He's the cursed son of Noah. From him comes his son, Canaan. From Canaan comes the Canaanites. It's the people who are living in the land of Canaan who are the Canaanites, and it's those people who the Israelites say, hey, look, there are those giant violent people, the Nephilim, who are in the land. So genetically, it's possible that the Nephilim made it through the flood through one of the wives of Noah's sons, particularly in my view, that would be Ham. We have a couple listener questions this week. 
Why are the angels called sons of God, but Jesus is God's one and only son? Are these words different in the Hebrew language? Interestingly, the phrase son of God um, is never applied to Jesus directly in the Old Testament. So we don't have a Hebrew expression for son of God um, in the Old Testament that that applies to Jesus. And, and so the, the references that we have to Jesus using that title of himself or the New Testament authors applying it to Jesus are all in the Greek New Testament. So in terms of the linguistic connection, um, there isn't one in the Hebrew. There are plenty of texts in the Old Testament where there is this implication of a coming son um, where for example, in some of the Psalms or in some of the um, prophecies as well, God refers to my son, um, but never the phrase son of God that's used there. So that's number one. We don't actually have the use of the phrase son of God in the Hebrew Old Testament applied to Jesus. Uh, secondly, even the phrase son of God in the New Testament is used in different ways. So in some cases, it's it's just an expression for humankind, and in other cases, it's a very clear title that is being used. When it's being used as a title, it's being used of Jesus. Um, but for example, in Luke's genealogy of Christ, in Luke chapter 3, we get all the way down to Adam, because Luke reverses the order of the genealogy. He starts with Jesus and then works his way down to Adam. And when it gets to Adam, he says, and there was Adam, the son of God. So Luke refers to Adam as the son of God because God made Adam. But clearly that's different than the title, son of God, which in the Gospels and the, and the rest of the New Testament exclusively designates Christ. So there's a flexibility in the usage of that term even in the New Testament. And that term only appears six times in the Old Testament and in reference to angelic beings, not to human beings. In your sermon, you said that the you're estimating that the age of the world is around 6,000 years old. Um, how did you get to that conclusion? Well, I, of course, come from the perspective that I've articulated in the Genesis account of a young earth perspective, that I take the dates in the book of Genesis as being literal, not literary. And as I read through the Genesis account, I don't think that there are gaps that are present in the genealogy. So some people have speculated that uh, the genealogy isn't um, connecting individuals into one another's lives, that there might be generational gaps of insignificant people that we don't read about. But even as we saw in the text this week in Genesis 5, there's a reference to so-and-so was this many years old. He had this son. He lived this many years after, then he died. And then that son lived so long and had this many children. So there seems to be an intentional um, thrust from Moses' perspective of connecting these men together as though they are sons and then grandsons and great-grandsons, that there aren't these gaps in, in the genealogy. So when you put that together, we're able to work back from Christ and to connect some of the events in Israel's history to known uh, dates in the history of the world, and then to connect those to genealogies that bring us all the way back to Adam. So for example, um, we have from uh, the the time of Adam to the time of Noah's flood. We've got a genealogical connection there that, that brings us uh, about 1,500 or so years. And then we have the time of Noah's flood, followed then by the life of Abraham and his immediate offspring. Those patriot, or patriot, the patriarchal years are enumerated for us in various genealogies through Genesis. So we've got a timeline for those. We then get to the time in Egypt, we're then told that the Israelites are in Egypt for 400 years. 
We then have the time of the judges. We're not exactly sure how long that lasts, but when Solomon shows up and builds his temple, we're told that that was 480 years since the Israelites left Egypt. So then we're able to add uh, another 400 years on top of that. And then we've got a very good record through the rest of First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, of the duration of the mon- monarchical period of Israel's history. We know when the exilic period happened in Israel's history, just over a few uh, 500, 600 years before the birth of Christ. And then we have the period of prophetic silence 400 years before the opening of the New Testament. So we, we know, putting all those pieces together, that give or take you know a few hundred years, we're about 4,000 years from Adam until Christ, according to all of those biblical dates. And then, of course, from Christ, uh, we, we're living uh, 2,000 years uh, since the life of Christ. Next week on the podcast, we will be answering questions about the opening chapters of Genesis. Feel free to send in any extra questions you still have about the opening chapters. We'll see you next week.